Ahoy there, me old nasties. Thanks for tuning in to this here, the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Yet again, we've got another round of horror films to dissect and review for your listening pleasure. You don't know what the Nasty Pasty is? Well, it's not a real thing, of course, but it's related to the legend of the video nasties, a large group of horror films that were harbingers of criminal behaviour and sadistic tendencies in our children. Our most gracious government and tabloids had the police knock on the doors of loads of shops and businesses, seizing the contentious films and prosecuting anyone who had their mitts on the obscene relics. Of course, many years on, everyone knows that it was all a load of rubbish, as most moral panics actually are. Eschewing the actual artefacts which caused the trouble, this podcast goes through two by two loads of other films that were around the same time, but they were too low profile to be caught in the raids. So, it's nasty, because it's so close to the subject of video nasties, and pasty, as it's a quintessentially British invention. But also, they have delicious fillings. Last week, we covered two typical Nazi exploitation films, one of which was to my chagrin, Bloody Elsa. This week, we're tackling a more traditional topic in horror, classic monsters. I guess you could also maybe say Universal Monsters, as they were iconic of that film company from the 1920s onwards. They're probably the most influential of all horror icons, as their presence is still felt today in everything from basic Halloween costumes to lunchboxes to posters. You have The Phantom of the Opera, a ghoulish man in a mask who haunts a theatre longing for the star of the show. There's Dracula, the Bram Stoker-crafted vampiric Count, Frankenstein's monster, an automaton made of human body parts, the mummy, a resurrected Egyptian mummified priest searching to reincarnate his long-lost love, the invisible man, a scientist gone mad after his experiments render him permanently invisible, the wolfman, a man cursed to become a werewolf after surviving a werewolf's bite, and the Gill Man, the so-called creature from the Black Lagoon, who's half man, half fish, and all living fossil. There's others too, like Bride of Frankenstein, and even The Hunchback of Notre Dame to an extent, and the series is actually being rebooted with a modern, Marvel-esque cinematic universe, starting with 2017's The Mummy, which had Tom Cruise in it. Now, these monsters are so familiar that almost everyone knows about them, even though it's not common to have seen the original films. Many of them, of course, have come from popular fiction novels throughout the years, but their own iconic status has been played with in various interpretations in film since their popularity was cemented by the early Universal films. The two films this week, they also cherry-pick elements from these classic examples, and they put their own spin on proceedings. They are 1979's Island of Mutations, its original title, Le Sola Degli Oamini Pesci, which means Island of the Fishmen, and also 1986's Spookies, which is originally filmed as Twisted Souls. Now, both of these films also have another thing in common, which wasn't readily apparent when I chose them. They have various different versions or edits for various reasons. Now, the first film today, Island of Mutations, exists in two different cuts. The version that I watched was the original Italian cut with the English dubbing, under the Island of the Fishmen title, but I also did skim through the US version under the title Screamers, just to see if there's any differences. So for ease of listening, the synopsis that I'm doing is a composite of all the scenes in every version, so that I don't miss anything out. So, without further ado, let's get on to our first film, Island of Mutations.
In 1891, as strange creatures prowl nearby, Captain Decker and his first mate escort a gentleman called James and his sister Samantha to an island, where the gentleman is searching for an ancient treasure in a cave. The captain escorts them to the cave entrance, where James and Samantha enter, only to find decomposed bodies far in bearing some gold, only for James to suddenly then lose track of Samantha. Back at the boat, the first mate becomes paranoid when he hears noises, only for one of the strange creatures to edge close by and tear his head off. James wanders around looking for Samantha, only for one of the creatures to slash his throat open. Decker is also attacked outside by one of the creatures that tears his intestines out. Samantha is now alone, wandering the caves to find James, and is soon shocked to find him dead. She runs back to the boat, only to be ambushed herself by one of the fishmen, and killed. Shortly afterwards, Lieutenant Claude de Ross, a doctor from a convict ship, drifts on a lifeboat along with a small band of convicts, the survivors of a shipwreck. When they edge near the island, the strange creatures flurry in the water and cause the boat to gain speed and crash into a rock wall, causing a great deal of the men to fall into the ocean. The strange creatures attack and kill a great deal of them during the scuffle. De Ross wakes up in the morning washed ashore and wanders onto the island to search for the others. He comes across a spring of strangely white water, and one of the convicts, Jose, whom he wards off the water due to finding a corpse near it. They enter the jungle and find another of the convicts, Francois, who leads them to a freshwater lake, where the other convicts, Peter and Skip, are bathing. Meanwhile, another convict comes across Decker's boat and discovers Samantha's rotten corpse, before he soon is attacked by one of the strange creatures. De Ross gives Francois a knife to hunt for some food, and he wanders away, only to be watched by a strange amphibian eye. Just as Francois catches a goose, a webbed clawed hand attacks him and gouges his face, killing him. The others hear his screams and discover his mangled body and decide to move away from the lake. As they proceed through the jungle, the group hear a horse, only for De Ross and Skip to fall into a pit trap, killing Skip instantly, with De Ross hanging on for dear life. He's rescued after Jose hoists him back up, much to the chagrin of Peter, who wanted him to be left for dead. The trio then happen upon the still-burning remains of a campfire among some human-built structures, which Jose suspects may be involved with voodoo. Suddenly, a snake goes near De Ross, only to be shot down by a lady upon a horse, Amanda, who informs the group that the uncharted island belongs to Edmund Rackham. Refusing to help them and then leaving, Amanda returns to her residence, a large tropical chalet in the midst of a gorge, and she chastises her servant Shakira for spying on her for the aforementioned Edmund, who meets with the survivors and offers them shelter. Spotting another voodoo altar, Jose panics yet again against about the living dead, but Peter soon smashes it up and categorises it as nonsense. In the house, Edmund suspects Amanda of letting the men follow her on purpose, and laments that Amanda does not want him, only desiring the lieutenant. At dinner, Edmund displays his paranoia and desire for control over the island rather openly, and reveals that Amanda is his wife, clearly against the wishes of Amanda. A strange man behind the walls begins to listen in on the dinner conversation, which Amanda seems to notice. Shakira later performs a voodoo ritual using a chicken, whilst Amanda travels to the beach on horseback with a bottle of the strange white fluid from before. The strange amphibian creatures emerge from the ocean and drink the fluid from her, but do not harm her. Peter, who's been watching her, becomes suspicious, and knocks her off her horse, pursuing her through the jungle. As he catches her, the fishmen emerge and kill him by dragging him under the water. De Ross confronts Edmund about his disappearance, only to be threatened when ca Edmund casually dismisses the incident. In protest, Amanda leaves on horseback, only for Jose to follow her. His horse throws him off at the sight of a large python, and he wanders near the campfire again, falling off the edge of a cliff and into the sea. Finding his way onto a boat, Edmund soon confronts him and knocks him out. De Ross meets with Amanda, who implores him to leave, stipulating that she cannot leave the island. On his way back, he's attacked by a fishman who injures him, but due to Amanda's interference, the creature backs off and re-enters the waters. Back at the house, de Ross notices Amanda helping the mysterious man behind the walls before getting knocked out by Edmund's men. Shakira forces him to drink an unknown substance, and after a feverish nightmare, he wakes up and confronts the pair about what's happening on the island. Opening a door to a laboratory, de Ross comes across the strange man, 
whom Edmund addresses as Professor. Edmund then suddenly has a change of heart and implores de Ross to save the Professor's life. After doing so, Edmund reveals him to be Ernest Marvin, a biologist who is also Amanda's father, and shows de Ross a cave system where he has a private submarine moored. They descend into the ocean, where de Ross notices an underwater ruined city, which Edmund surmises is Atlantis. He explains that the fishmen are a hybrid of men and fish who used to be the original inhabitants of Atlantis, kept under control with the white fluid, and sent down into the depths of the ocean to retrieve the treasures of Atlantis and return them to Edmund's pockets. De Ross rescues Amanda from her room, and the pair enter Ernest's lab, only to discover Jose being transformed into one of the fishmen, confirming that it was in fact Ernest who created the fishmen himself, using innocent people as guinea pigs. As de Ross kills Jose in mercy, Ernest arrives and laments his death, suddenly spouting that he wanted to create the hybrids to ensure humanity's survival, when global warming inevitably hits and makes the sea levels rise. Edmund suddenly appears and shoots Ernest dead, and is about to do the same to de Ross until he has the idea to drown him in a tank. He also shoots Shakira when she prophesies at the island's destruction, and takes Amanda and Ernest's corpse with him heads to the submarine, and showing the fishmen that Ernest is now gone, declares that they now take orders from him. Irritated, they sink the submarine with Ernest's corpse inside, and the volcano on the island suddenly begins to erupt, causing the whole cave to start crumbling, and the fishmen to attack Edmund and Amanda. A barely alive Shakira stumbles into the house while de Ross struggles to stay above water in the tank. She notices this and saves him from drowning before dying from her injuries, her final words imploring de Ross to kill Edmund. Escaping from the now ablaze chalet, with the volcano's lava flowing all over, de Ross heads from the caves where Edmund struggles to stave off the fishmen. On their way out, de Ross ambushes Edmund and fights with him, saving Amanda. The pair descend into the caves to reach the boat, using a rope to avoid the now out-of-control fishmen, and reaching the vessel, Amanda is suddenly grabbed by Edmund, who attacks the pair with a knife, but the ensuing struggle ends with Edmund thrown overboard, where he's attacked and killed by the fishmen. The cave-in, however, worsens and destroys the boat, sending Amanda and de Ross into the water. The fishmen kidnap Amanda and drag her underwater, with de Ross in hot pursuit. The island then becomes completely obliterated with both the cave-ins and the volcanic lava, burying both the treasure and the city of Atlantis. By morning, de Ross and Amanda wake up on a piece of flotsam from Edmund's boat, with Amanda explaining that the fishmen must have saved them, and that maybe one day her father's vision for humanity will come true underneath the water. Just as they muse upon this, a ship passes by, and the pair rejoice that they are now saved. Very curious about that cemetery with the empty graves. What happened to the bodies? Quite simple. There was a volcanic eruption. And the natives decided to abandon the island. They were afraid the volcano would destroy them. Before they left, they threw their dead into the sea. Just a silly superstition. But I saw several recent signs of black magic ceremonies. So someone still takes those silly superstitions quite seriously. Shakira could perhaps tell you more about that. She comes from Haiti, the home of voodoo. But if I were you, Lieutenant, I wouldn't meddle in such matters. After all, curiosity killed the cat, you know. I don't understand. What don't you understand? This island, and you people, living this far from civilization. I don't see what's so attractive about the place. I just find it very strange. And is the so-called civilized world more attractive? I certainly don't regret leaving it. Isn't that so, my dear? You're a doctor, Lieutenant. Perhaps you can put a name to my strangeness. Misanthropy. Well, I wouldn't say that I exactly hate my fellow men. Let's just say I resent them imposing their laws upon me. Here in this island, I am absolute master. 
After releasing Mountain of the Cannibal God in 1978, Sergio Martino had acquired a taste for the exotic jungle adventure and signed on to produce two more films which were similarly themed. 1979's Island of Mutations was the second film, and later the same year he completed the triad with The Great Alligator, which also starred Claudio Cassinelli, Barbara Bach, and Richard Johnson. Collectively, they're known today as Sergio Martino's Jungle Trilogy, or the Adventure Trilogy. The inspiration for Island of Mutations, however, is the 1896 novel from H.G. Wells, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which follows a shipwrecked man called Prendick, who arrives on a mysterious island run by a man called Montgomery. Investigating Montgomery's importing of animals and discovering several mutant human hybrids on the island, Prendick discovers that Dr. Moreau is creating the hybrids using immoral vivisection experiments. Having them obey a law that prevents animalistic behaviour, Moreau also inflicts bouts of pain on the creatures as punishment for breaking these laws, to discourage them from returning to their wild instincts. Martino's film is pretty much the same template. A shipwrecked lieutenant takes the protagonist's space, occupied by Prendick, and arrives on a mysterious island run by Edmund, who takes the place of Montgomery from the novel. Dr. Moreau is, pl- is replaced by Ernest, though notably the creatures are obviously fishmen rather than a varied menagerie of animal-human hybrids. This change to the amphibious mutants also anticipates the inclusion of Amanda's character, who doesn't really have a parallel in Wells' novel. She is instead a vestige from 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon, where the Gillman design is originally from. In that movie, the Gillman pursues the female explorer Kay and eventually kidnaps her, though notably does not harm her. This threatening but curious relationship is echoed in the fishmen's protection and fascination with Amanda. Other elements of the book, like Moreau's law that he imposes on his creations, is reflected in the mysterious potion that Ernest creates to keep the fishmen under his control, and the book's island becoming ablaze due to Prendick knocking over an oil lamp is upgraded to a full-on volcanic eruption in Martino's film. As adaptations go, it's a rather fun ride, really, chock-full of B-movie elements that you'd expect from the 50s and 60s. We have a mysterious island, voodoo rituals, black magic, a mad doctor, a captive lady, treasure, etc., etc. It's made all the more enjoyable by the fact that the film is structured quite well, and it doesn't lag too much. Similarly, with Martino's previous film, Mountain of the Cannibal God, the pace is quite breezy and it feels easy to watch because of this, especially when the film's locations are so lush and exotic. The moment where Ernest is peering through a hole in the wall and staring at his daughter was very similar to Norman Bates in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, especially with the heavy breathing aspect. Other references to other films and novels also managed to creep their way in, such as the whole plot about Atlantis and recovering treasure, which was noticeably absent from the island of Dr. Moreau. In quite a humorous nod, though, Jose panics when he sees the remains of voodoo magic and nearby empty graves, and assumes that living dead zombies now roam the island, making quite a clear reference to zombie flesh eaters, which was released later the same year. I mean, perhaps word had got around the Italian studios that Fulci was working on such a project. I mean, the presence of Richard Johnson, who also ended up in Fulci's film, it can't be that much of a coincidence. The film is also peppered with lots of Italian flourishes that genre enthusiasts will recognise and check off their checklists. For example, the rather cheesy and silly dubs. We do get some quite funny lines coming out of our characters' mouths, but rather than detract from the film's enjoyment, it positively adds to the B-grade fun value that the film offers. What is noticeable, relating to the dubs anyway, is that the English dub of the Italian cut and the English dub of the US Screamers cut have different voice actors. Not immediately strange, but in the Italian cut, the convicts speak with English accents, and the De Rossi's character has a slight Italian quality to his speech. But in the Screamers cut, all of these characters have American accents. The only characters who have the same voice dub in both versions are Amanda and Edmund, presumably because their English dubs were provided by the actors personally. Another aspect that Italy seemed to parade around in these films is the misogyny. Edmund keeps Amanda captive and threatens to kill her father if she does not accept his advances. Though she does seem to have resisted on multiple occasions, we are privy to Edmund forcing himself on her at one point, only to get the stereotypical shower of slaps when she doesn't reciprocate. 
Honestly, when I do write my book, I'm going to be including a section on the Italian women slapping. It's almost like it wasn't a legitimate film unless they had a scene like this in it. Unfortunately, another Italian staple that really ought not to be here is some specks of animal cruelty. In Martino's previous film, Mountain of the Cannibal God, there were scenes of this nature which Martino had said he did not want to shoot and he explained that they just got a little out of control. But the fact that they crop up again here, it makes this excuse just a little bit suspect. The same goes for Ruggiero Diodato, who always invoked the producers wanted it excuse. Mercifully, there is much less of it in Island of Mutations, though it is hard to tell which examples are genuine or not. Amanda shoots a snake that is nearing De Ross. Well, with absolutely deadly accuracy, I have to say, I'm surprised that there wasn't more of this gunplay shown to us. Um, we only see a blood spurt for a nanosecond. It's really hard to tell whether the money shot, so to speak, was actually on a real snake. The same goes for the scene of a scorpion being pulverised. It's clearly real before the violence, but afterwards it looks a bit like a plastic imitation, but again, one can't really tell. This is not the same, though, for the voodoo scene later, though, where there's a chicken who's killed. Undoubtedly, this scene is for real. There's also a scene early in the film where Francois grabs a goose, but thankfully nothing happens to that bird. It just flies off when Francois is killed by one of the fishmen. It is a bit disappointing, though, to see this sort of stuff here. While it's still inexcusable, you'd expect scenes like this in a cannibal movie, as it does seem to be part of the production at the time. But here, it's certainly not needed, and it does leave a little saltiness in the viewer. The characters in the film are also quite endearing. De Ross is our dashing hero in almost every aspect, and Casanelli is charismatic enough to take the reins of the protagonist rather well. Barbara Back's Amanda sort of fulfills that damsel role, but her Hawkeye aim and her insistence on providing the fishmen with their foamy brew does add enough uniqueness to her to be distinctive. Richard Johnson, who plays Edmund, though, kind of steals the show a little bit. He's a jealous, raving bastard who selfishly and nastily plays his house guests, all for garnering the gold at the city of Atlantis. He blackmails Amanda into being his wife by threatening to kill her father, and he quite openly demonstrates his dislike of society and other people in general, preferring a small island where he has absolute dominion. This broiling inner anger of his, though, gets the best of him, and after he shoots Ernest dead, the one man giving him the ability to control the fishmen, his downfall is sealed, as the fishmen quickly rebel and kill him when he enters the waters. Notably, the film does shift this antagonistic role to Edmund, whereas if it were closely based on the novel, Ernest would in fact be the main antagonist. His relationship to the plot is de-emphasised in Martino's film, Probably for the better, really, as Johnson is capable enough to be a moustache-tweaking asshole without it descending into pure cheese. Well, maybe a little bit of cheese. The secondary antagonists, in the form of our mutated fishmen, are quite rigorously based on the same appearance as the Gillman from the aforementioned Creature from the Black Lagoon. Their design doesn't deviate that much from the earlier film, which isn't bad necessarily, but it does smack a little bit of being unoriginal. Thankfully, their appearance is not featured too much on screen until the film's final 20 minutes, so all we see up until that point is webbed claws and fish-like eyes. There are a few exceptions to this appearance in the US Screamers cut, but we'll get onto that later. They do kill people, of course, but not quite in the lurid graphic sense that gorehounds would be pursuing, and apart from some gunshot wounds and Jose being stabbed by De Ross, the film actually doesn't offer us too much in the way of bloodshed. Again, the screamer's cut is a little bit different, which we'll discuss in a bit. Oddly, for an Italian film, though, there's actually no profanity or swearing that I can remember, and there's no sexy time or nudity either. You might be wondering, then, really, why would you watch it? But, quite honestly, it's just a good adventure film with some minor horror elements. There's some clawings, there's action sequences involving cave-ins and a volcanic eruption, as well as some cheesy dialogue and an atmosphere of fun campiness. For those of you who are into pure horror or gore, this may leave you a little bit parched, but if you're a fan of Italian genre movies, this has enough familiar ingredients to really hit that sweet spot and leave you feeling satisfied. Claude de Ross, our intrepid hero, was played by Claudio Casanelli, whom we've encountered before on Nasty Pasty, on Both Hands of Steel, and What Have They Done to Your Daughters. He was, of course, also in the video Nasty, Mountain of the Cannibal God, and he'd return in The Great Alligator, the third part of Martino's Jungle Trilogy. 
Joining him on the latter was Barbara Back, who plays Amanda here. We've encountered her before as well when we covered Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Richard Johnson played the role of Edmund. Now, he was a very talented actor from Essex, England, who'd honed his craft in the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art before debuting in theatre. He took on a variety of roles, including 1963's The Haunting, before making some quite prominent appearances in some Italian genre films, one of which was this one. He soon went on to Fulci's video nasty, Zombie Flesh Eaters, and he returned for Martino's final jungle adventure, The Great Alligator. Beryl Cunningham, who played Shakira, reappeared in Exterminators of the Year 3000, while Roberto Posse, who played Peter, had previously featured in Suspicious Death of a Minor, also by Martino, as well as Nazi Love Camp 27. Ernest was played by veteran Joseph Cotton, who'd been in movies since the 40s, like Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, up until the 70s in things like The Abominable Dr. Fibes and Syndicate Sadists. Giuseppe Castellano, who played Skip, has been featured before on Nasty Pasty when he was in Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Edmund's unnamed servant, who also has no dialogue and therefore no credit, was nonetheless played by Bobby Rhodes, famous for his role as Tony in Demons, the foul-mouthed pimp. He cropped up again in The Great Alligator, the video nasty The Last Hunter, Demons 2 and Endgame, but he continues to make movies to this very day. In the US Screamers Cut Only, Cameron Mitchell features as Captain Decker. We've seen Mitchell plenty of times in Blood and Black Lace or Without Warning. Also showing up in the Screamers Cut is Mel Ferrer, who plays James. Ferrer is also recognisable in Video Nasty Circles, as he appeared in three of them himself. Toby Hooper's Death Trap, Umberto Lenzi's Eaten Alive, and also Nightmare City. Outside of these, he was also in Suspicious Death of a Minor and The Great Alligator, both by Martino, and he also had an appearance in 1979's The Visitor. We've encountered a few of the crew members before already, such as director Sergio and producer Luciano Martino when we did Hands of Steel. The script was also written by the pair in question, as well as writer Cesar Frugoni, who worked on Cut and Run, which we've also mentioned before. He also wrote Mountain of the Cannibal God and The Great Alligator, the other entries in Martino's loose trilogy. Assistant director Massimo Manassi helped aid Martino on most of his projects, such as The Great Alligator, The Scorpion with Two Tails, and 2019 after the fall of New York. The director of photography on Island of Mutations was Giancarlo Ferrando, who worked on loads of Italian fare afterwards, like Iron Master, 2019 after the fall of New York, Devouring Waves, House of Witchcraft, House of Lost Souls, and Troll 2. Composer Luciano Michelini had previously worked on Suspicious Death of a Minor, whilst editor Eugenio Alabicio we've seen before on Almost Human and The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist. Now, the film's special effects, in the original Italian cut anyway, were done by Dino Galliano, whom we've encountered before on Four Flies on Grey Velvet. He was assisted by the production designer, Massimo Antonello Galeng, who'd worked in that capacity on a whole bunch of stuff, like Mountain of the Cannibal God, Cannibal Holocaust, Eaten Alive, Contamination, City of the Living Dead, House on the Edge of the Park, The Scorpion with Two Tails, and 2019, After the Fall of New York. Other effects were done by Paolo Ricci, whom we've encountered before on Hands of Steel. The Screamers cut, though, had additional composing work done by Sandy Berman, who mainly worked as a sound effects editor on films like 1980's Cataclysm, The House on Sorority Row, Fatal Games, Jaws 3D, Mac and Me, and then she went on to Disney stuff like Oliver and Company and Aladdin. The additional special effects of the streamers cut were done by Chris and Mark Wallace, who'd collaborated on quite a few prominent films themselves, like Piranha, Humanoids from the Deep, Airplane, Return of the Jedi, Gremlins, The Fly and The Fly 2, House 2, Arachnophobia, and Hot Shots. The film was released in Italian cinemas in January of 1979 to a rather successful run, and the same print, dubbed in English, was passed uncut at the UK cinemas in June of the same year, which does cast some doubt on some of those animal cruelty instances. The chicken scene would have been considered a clean kill without the suffering, however, and that's the only one that I can say with certainty that was real. 
In the US, New World Pictures acquired the rights to release it, but the distributor found the film to be too tame for a modern audience. Deciding to ramp up the gore level, the infamous Roger Corman had additional scenes shot at Bronson Caves in California, based on additional scripts written by Miller Drake. The new footage included the scenes of Decker, James and Samantha in the opening being killed by the fishmen in rather graphic ways, with an extra scene of one of the convicts being killed upon discovering Samantha's body. The violence in these earlier scenes is noticeably ramped up from the rest of the film's quite mild sequences, featuring a head being ripped off, a throat being slashed and a graphic disembowelment. To make room for these new scenes, the Italian version was shorn of roughly 30 minutes of contentious footage, and it was redubbed with a new soundtrack as well, in comparison to the original. Some of the footage removed was the voodoo sequence involving the chicken slaughter, but there's a whole host of changes. Jose's half-mutated body was reshot with a much more graphic-looking transformation, for example, featuring internal organs pulsating on the outside of his body, and then they also filmed a more graphic stabbing of him. The ending was also tweaked slightly, showing one of the fishmen surviving underwater, implying that not all of them had died. This version was released in early 1980 under the title Something Waits in the Dark, but it failed to garner a lively response from audiences. So future director Jim Wynorski decided to take the mantle of a new advertising campaign to re-release the film to get a more successful return. He retitled the film Screamers and filmed a new trailer with original footage which implied the monsters were humans that were turned literally inside out, presumably to cash in on the refilmed scene of Jose that has his internal organs sticking out. A new sequence, showing a man quite literally being turned inside out quite graphically, was therefore featured in a trailer, along with some other transformation shots to try and tempt those who ignored something weights in the dark. It did re-release in 1981 to a much more improved success, but it wasn't all good news. Some moviegoers felt ripped off when the man being turned inside out actually did not appear in the film, and after a few violent protests and riots at local cinemas, the cinema reels were sent back to New World Pictures in order to have that scene in question spliced into the film somehow. All subsequent versions of Screamers, however, are missing this scene, as it wasn't actually part of the original film's negatives and was merely haphazardly edited in for the cinema versions. The modern Screamers cut is near identical to the re-edit Something Awaits in the Dark, so therefore the two distinctive versions are floating around. The original Italian version from the UK cinema eventually made its way onto pre-cert VHS in December of 1980, and it was released as Island of Mutations from Vipco. It was incredibly rare, however, and it wasn't all seen that frequently. But as Vipco were notorious for their part in the Nasty Saga, it's possible that the VHS tape maybe raised a few eyebrows. But having said that, the film is pretty mild anyway, and the Vipco version had some scenes removed, not for censorship, but for timing and pacing. Around five minutes of material was missing, rather like their release of Driller Killer. It's not known as to the full extent of the removals, but the scene where Jose is knocked out by Edmund is missing, as is the scene where de Ross is force-fed a potion and the subsequent nightmare he suffers. After the Video Recordings Act was passed, the pre-cert tape vanished from the public eye, and since, the film has not been resubmitted, so the UK is in desperate need of this movie. I'd consider it cult enough to warrant a modern release, and it would certainly benefit giving its lush colour palette and cheesy campiness. It is available in the US, of course, but it is the Screamers cut, which is missing some of the original Italian's scenes. So, that was Island of Mutations. Our next film is 1986's Spookies, which is a vastly different kind of film, and a thoroughly entertaining one at that. So let's find out what I'm talking about.
a strangely accented sorcerer called Creon, who lives in a large mansion, covets someone called Isabel, who's inside a coffin, explaining that once his final victims have arrived, she and he will be together once more. Outside, a young boy called Billy arrives on the house's grounds and eats cake, declaring to himself a happy birthday. Suddenly, a strange drifter startles him, and after chatting with him, Billy says that his parents forgot his birthday, so he ran away from home. Just as Billy leaves, a strange half-cat, half-man creature slashes the mysterious drifter to death, while at the same time, two carloads of people start arriving near the mansion. The werecat stops the cars with a branch in the middle of the roads, causing them to become further frustrated. Billy wanders into the mansion and discovers a room set up for a birthday party, which delights him. Strange things begin to happen, however, such as the cake's candles lighting on their own, and a doll emitting strange noises. One of the boxes reveals Creon's head inside, scaring Billy away. The two cars, containing Duke, Peter, Lewis, Carol, Linda, Rich, Megan, Adrienne, and Dave arrive at the mansion and decide to hold their makeshift party there, with Creon approvingly cooing as he sees them out of the window. Billy flees outside, pursued by the werecat, towards an empty grave, where he is suddenly slashed up and buried alive by the monster. As the party goes settle into the mansion's living room, Carol finds a strange artefact and suddenly becomes entranced by it, while Duke finds a corpse holding a Ouija board inside a closet. The group start to play the Ouija board, which is being manipulated by Creon. Shortly after Carol uses it, Creon uses it to possess Carol, and she becomes a haggard demon who attacks the group. Adrienne and Dave try to leave in their car, but fail to find the keys, while Lewis runs to the garden and is suddenly swallowed by the earth when a gravestone pops up with his name on it, causing Adrienne and Dave to get back into the house. Duke and Linda then check outside, only to notice that the graves are opening with countless zombies now encircling the house. Resolving to explore the place, the group splits up. Duke and Linda head into another room, while Rich, Megan and Peter check upstairs, leaving Adrienne and Dave in the entrance hall. Creon opens the coffin to see Isabel, who now awakens and makes it clear that she did not want to be revived from death. Duke and Linda enter the basement, where Duke intends to make love to Linda. But all of a sudden, several men made of mud emerge from the floor and attack the pair, making bizarre flatulent sounds. They manage to get rid of them by flooding the basement with wine, causing them to melt down into mulch. Rich enters a room and finds Carol with her Ouija board, who locks him in, while Peter and Megan try to find a way to free him. Isabel explains that she's poisoned herself once before and will do it again, but Creon is unwilling to listen and vows to keep her alive again and again. Rich awakens to find that Carol has disappeared, and then he can suddenly leave the room, while Duke and Linda pass by a vampiric boy on their way through the house. Adrienne, alone due to Dave drinking and passing out, suddenly hears noises around her. Megan suddenly finds a hanging body with a suicide note, indicating that they're not the first to become ensnared in the house. Adrienne suddenly flips Dave over, only to see that he's dead, his face eaten by some gremlin lizard-type monsters that have encircled her. She manages to fight them off despite being injured in the process, and escapes the room, heading upstairs to find Peter and Megan. Creon shows the vampiric boy to Isabel, explaining that it is their son, causing her to run away. Adrienne sees Dave from afar and heads towards him, only for it to be an illusion, leading to a strange octopus creature with electrified tentacles that strangles her to death and causes her face to corrode rapidly. Isabel enters a cave system in the basement to try and escape, but she's prevented from doing so by a banshee-like creature. Duke and Linda eventually meet up with Peter and Megan, and Duke ends up causing a fight between him and Peter. Alone, Rich wanders into a derelict corridor covered in spider's webs, only to encounter a strange Asian lady who offers to show him a way out. As Duke and Peter carry on fighting, a Grim Reaper statue comes alive and kills Duke and injures Linda as the group escape. The Asian lady reveals that she is in fact dead, and that Rich soon will be too, just as he's attacked by giant spiders and caught in a giant spider's web. The lady transforms into a large humanoid spider creature and kills him by suddenly draining out his innards. As Linda, Peter and Megan take refuge, the Grim Reaper pursues them and they are forced to use the ledges outside to escape him. 
Peter confronts the statue, however, and manages to toss it onto the ground, causing it to explode into flames. Returning to the previous room, Peter discovers a painting of Creon and some old manuscripts, and surmises that there may be more files in the living room where the Ouija board was, arming themselves to defend against Carol and the monsters. Entering the room, Carol suddenly destroys their weapons and explains that they, meaning her and Creon, only want their souls. The artefact of hers, along with her eyes and head, suddenly glows bright white, enveloping the trio in a magical spell which rapidly ages them. Linda succumbs quickly, as does Megan, while Peter tries to destroy Carol's Ouija board, only for magic within it to emerge and zap him in the eyes, killing him. In the basement, Isabel realises that she cannot escape by simply finding a way out, and she returns to Creon. She plays along with his ploy, only to stab him in the head with a screwdriver seemingly killing him. She busts open a window and then painstakingly climbs down a trellis onto the ground, only to be pursued by the large crowd of zombies, now joined by the undead drifter and some of the dead group from before. The zombies trap her and tear most of her dress off before she gets away, constantly pursued by the undead horde. She finally locates a car and hides inside it, only to be rescued by the car's owner who then helps her drive away from the grounds. Just as she thinks she's escaped, the driver is revealed to be the werecat in disguise, just as Creon is reborn from a coffin in the grounds, laughing maniacally as the film ends. I poisoned myself once before and I'll do it again. Or find another way. Haven't you learned that my will to have you is greater than your will to die? Even if you keep me prisoner for another 70 years, you'll never have me. But I do have you. I control your past, your present, and your future. This time, there will be no escape. David, throw that crap away. Why? Because you say so? Because you don't drink, you asshole. And you only get sick. God knows who's touched it before you. I don't give a damn, honey! I don't. I really don't. And we're all probably gonna die tonight anyway, so why not dead drunk, huh? Why not? You're ridiculous. <coughs> Spookies is one of those films that you're not quite sure why it was made, but you bless your lucky stars that it was. I mean, what can I say? It's immediately obvious that it's a bit of a cheap production. Its characters are not particularly standout, it's a bit of a mishmash of different things, and its writing is pretty much awful. But the film is redeemed wholly and absolutely by the sheer originality, ballsiness, and the breadth of the film's effects and monsters. I don't think I've ever seen such a mixture of creatures in one film, until Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods, many decades later in 2012. Whedon's also has a slightly similar plot as well, but maybe we'll get to that later. To explain Spookies, though, you'd have to delve into the rather troubled film history. The film was conceived when first-timers Brendan Faulkner and Thomas Duran, both horror film buffs, met up with Vipco owner Mike Lee whilst making a showreel for their project called Hellspawn. Very excited to be making a feature-length project, Faulkner and Duran, assisted by their friend and producer Frank M. Farrell, wrote the draft script for a movie entitled Twisted Souls, based on the sole advice of Mike Lee, who basically requested that it be a haunted house movie where lots of people are killed in various ways. The spirit of the project was that it was to be a monster-every-minute sort of movie. Duran and Faulkner started work immediately, taking six weeks to prepare for the shoot. The original script of Twisted Souls was about a group of teenagers who enter a house, only for supernatural forces to take over and kill them with a variety of strange monsters. There were no zombies surrounding the house, but invisible ghosts, who in the opening sequence were supposed to attack a homeless man wandering through the graveyard before he flees, revealing the opening credits. In fact, Twisted Souls only has a slight resemblance to the end product, for reasons which we'll get to in a moment. The shoot started in August of 1984 at the Jay Estate in Rye, New York, which was supposed to wrap at the end of September, but ended up finishing a week before Thanksgiving, which for those of us in the UK is towards the end of November. 
The original budget provided by Mike Lee was agreed at $250,000, but it ended up going slightly over to $300,000. The shoot went relatively incident-free, with only a few exceptions. The project going over its time period has usually been attributed to cinematographer Ken Kelsch, who not only found the effects work and the small crew to be slowing the process down, but he also tragically lost his son to cot death while residing in the mansion where they were filming at. Understandably, this affected his investment with the project, but ever the professional, Kelsch continued, sort of inspired by Duran's and Faulkner's enthusiasm, which he would later liken to that of a young Sam Raimi or Wes Craven, who he worked with on The Last House on the Left. The Grim Reaper outfit had a set of lights inside to illuminate the eyes, but in between one of the takes, due to massive overheating, the outfit began smouldering, causing the crew to think that it was on fire. In reality, no ignition took place though, and the suit was used just fine afterwards. The octopus creature in the hallway was actually designed for use in another film altogether, but the special effects guys just repurposed it by adding some rubber claws, the electrified tentacles, and spraying it with glycerin to make it look slimy. It didn't actually have that many moving parts though, so the crew had to painstakingly push it slowly along using a wheeled platform. The infamous Mud Men were originally designed by Arnold Gargiolo, but his initial prototype was dismissed by Faulkner and Duran, who deemed it abominable, and he was subsequently dropped from the project. Instead, they went for more of a dry, soil-covered zombie-style effect, but they were very unhappy with the inclusion of the rather unique, humorous flatulence that the Mud Men seemed to have in the final edit. Initially, it was put in as a joke by the sound editor, but Mike Lee instead found it hilarious and insisted that he wanted to keep it in. Finally, Twisted Souls had completed filming, with an initial assembly cut of the film running at two and a half hours. Initial viewings by video companies were positive, so the editing began on Twisted Souls to refine the assembly cut to a more acceptable length. Interference from Mike Lee, however, who had no knowledge of film language or editing processes, delayed the film's completion in post-production. This was only exacerbated when Lee prematurely screened the assembly cut for a major studio, United Artists, who dismissed it because of its seemingly unfinished nature and slow pace. Lee was not happy with this rejection at all, and he began to closely scrutinise what was included in the final edit, further muddying the relationship between Lee, Faulkner and Duran. Having finally had enough one day, Faulkner asked Lee to leave the crew alone to finish the work properly, and Lee furiously refused, stating that he didn't need them to finish his movie, and he summarily sacked everyone from the project, ranting about how all his money was now wasted. With Pharrell's production company about to be left in the lurch with all the burden of debt, he, Faulkner and Duran were forced to sue Mike Lee in order to recover the remaining debt, which was eventually settled, ending the entire charade and leaving everyone with bitterness. Twisted Souls, around 90% complete, was then shelved and left to an uncertain future. Not wanting to squander the capital that he put into it, Lee sought out editor Jeannie Joseph, and she was brought in to rescue the film and salvage it as a marketable seller. She initially did not want to, as she didn't like catastrophic changes to someone else's project. After Lee expressed that he felt the film as it currently existed did not work, Joseph went through it with a fine-tooth comb with a bunch of other editors, who trimmed the existing material down to 45 minutes, salvaging what they felt were the best elements. So new scenes, including the characters of Billy, Creon, Isabel, the Werecat, the Vampiric Boy, and the Zombies, were written and directed by Joseph to wrap around the remainder of Twisted Souls. As an editor herself, she shot the scenes with the existing material in mind, to seamlessly blend in certain aspects of the production and keep it as a cohesive whole, along with cinematographer Bob Chappelle on hand to style the new sequences. The remaining 35 minutes of footage was then shot and re-edited as the film we now know today. Mike Lee suggested the title Spookies based on the memorable nature of The Goonies and other similar horrors like Ghoulies, but Joseph was actually hesitant due to the term being a derogatory term for black people in America. It ended up being used anyway for the title, and Spookies debuted in the US cinemas in January of 1987, but it just grossed just under $18,000. 
Instead, though, it found a raving success on the home video market where it made a whopping $2 to $3 million return. After seeing the edited version, now called Spookies, Faulkner, Farrell and Duran were ultimately disgusted at how much of their original material was scrapped. Farrell was also personally disappointed that the Mud Men were left with the flatulent sounds, whilst Faulkner considered it unnecessary to have chopped out so much when he considered Twisted Souls near complete, only requiring a minor editing job to finish it. Duran felt the worst of all. He refused to speak of the film ever again, even up until his death in 2016. The original cinematographer, Kelsch, already embittered over his personal trauma that he suffered through the production, was also similarly annoyed at the state of the new film, and he refused to speak to the new cinematographer, Bob Chappelle, ever again, despite them being friends beforehand. Jeannie Joseph was satisfied and felt that she'd done the best job that she could have done with the resources that she had, whilst Mike Lee collected the majority of the film's now lucrative profits. As you can see from this tale, the production was not only troubled, but it left a lot of people embittered and sore for many years, some of whom are still angry about the film today. So with the rather sour notes of the film's production aside, what do we actually have with Spookies? Despite the two sources of material being bundled together, you do have to commend Jeannie Joseph in actually editing around Twisted Souls and making it seem like a cohesive story. Too often when you combine footage from two crews in this manner, the results are rather catastrophically bad. But with Spookies, it's just not so. I mean, there's the obvious flaws, like the fact that Creon never gets to see his victims directly, and that the stock used is different during the Twisted Souls footage from the Spookies footage. But apart from that, the Twisted Souls footage is so bizarre in nature that the additions of the Werecat, Creon, the Vampire Kid, and the Zombies, it really seamlessly blends into the original's universe, shall we say. Some of the flourishes that she added as well I actually find quite endearing, like the fact that whenever characters can't open doors, Joseph has made it appear that it's actually the Werecat keeping the door closed, acting almost like Creon's Arbiter of Death. The little incidental closet door that Linda and Duke pass and briefly touch now has new purpose when it's shown that the vampiric boy is inside lurking about. Obviously, in the Twisted Souls footage, this scene probably had nothing to do with the closet at all, but it's been repurposed appropriately. I'm not saying it's the best thing ever, but you do have to give them credit for at least competently adding to the original material without ruining it too much. It would, though, genuinely be amazing to uncover the original Twisted Souls footage so that we could see what it looked like before Mike Lee threw a paddy. But, unfortunately, it does seem now that the original reels are lost forever. With what we do have, though, a cult horror buff certainly can't complain. There's monsters aplenty in this film, all realised with a whole string of practical effects. While they're not the absolute best, they're certainly still effective with the panache and the sheer gutsiness of their exhibition. You can feel the passion with which these monsters are being realised, and that's one of the most commendable parts of Spookies. Granted, the special effects of the Spookies footage, compared to the Twisted Souls sections, is not as enthusiastic and rather cheap-looking, but you still have a rather controversial scene where a 13-year-old boy is hacked up before being buried alive. Kids dying like this just doesn't happen in horror a whole bunch, so this is one of the many memorable things about this film. Another, much to the original people's chagrin, is the farting muckmen. I mean, I can't th even pull this one out of my own imagination, and certainly no other horror movie has flatulent soil monsters attacking people. Just incredibly creative and original, which is kind of what one wants from cult movies. The hallway creature that looks like an octopus and has electrified tentacles. Again, where on earth have you ever seen anything like it? A living grim... A living Grim Reaper statue coming to life. Again, just massively creative and endearing to watch. That's not to say that the film isn't derivative though too. Carol's possession through the Ouija board screams Evil Dead, simply based on her appearance, whilst the lizard-like creatures are also slightly less original as they're kind of riffs on ghoulies or gremlins. Creon's design is basically Count Dracula without fangs. I mean, he's also, he also respawns from a coffin, so it's pretty obvious. Isabel has the connotations of the Bride of Frankenstein, considering that she was dead, and the Werecat creature has elements of Lurch from the Adams family, doing all of Creon's bidding with a hunched appearance and a morbid fascination with holding doors closed. It's just a real mishmash of both traditional horror tropes, clashing with bizarre but exciting monstrous combinations. 
And to sweeten the deal, there's also some bloody special effects too. Like Linda getting slashed on the legs, Billy gets slashed up with claws, and Adrian being constantly bitten by the small lizard creatures. There are some rather silly and daft ones though too, like Rich's innards being drained out, or Adrienne's face corroding, but quite honestly, you're just too entertained to care. This is a real hoot for anyone who loves silly, cheesy horror. The characters though are nothing really to write home about. They're painfully generic and demoted to second class really in favour of the wonderful special effects. One of the only exceptions which I'll mention is the outrageously angry, irritating piece of twattery that Duke is. He's just constantly in a mood for no reason, and he just acts stupidly, like suddenly attacking a door using a chair because he can't get it open. And he wears the most ridiculous leather outfit. He really is the most vile of idiots. I honestly couldn't wait for him to die. And it's the only thing about the film I didn't like. He just didn't die violently enough for my liking. Still... I'll take what I can get, because sometimes the person you dislike most in these movies doesn't die at all. Right, Elsa? Another mention has to be given, though, to Adrienne, the distinctly British lady who's with the rather hapless Dave. She does own pretty much all of her lines with her catty, heavily irritated British twang. In one of the best lines of the whole film, she says, David, throw that crap away. Why? Because you say so? Because you don't drink, you arsehole. You'll only be sick. I really laughed at that moment. The timing was pure genius. The cast, though, are relatively unknown, in both sets of footage, with just a few exceptions. Billy the Kid was played by Alec Nemser, who has since starred in a variety of shorts, as well as 2010's Valentine's Day and The Princess Diaries 2. Nick Gionta, who played the irritating Duke, went on to have a very small role in Street Trash, while Peter Yaisillo Jr., who played Rich, had some small character roles in Day of the Dead, Street Trash, Killer Dead, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, and Gotham. Interestingly about his character, though, I found Rich to be incredibly similar to Richie from the TV movie adaptation of Stephen King's It. Now, this was obviously released after Spookies, but the manner in which he conducts himself, the jokes, the stupid practical puppet goofs, and even the vocal quality, they all remind me of the adult Beep Beep Richie. That's about it, though, for the cast members. We'll start with the Twisted Souls crew first, starting with Brendan Faulkner, the director, who went on to work on various other projects, like Woodchipper Massacre and 1992's Killer Dead, which he directed. He sadly didn't do much else, and the same goes for co-director Thomas Duran, who'd only really worked as a storyboard artist on James Glickenhouse's The Exterminator and Igor and the Lunatics before. Producer and writer Frank M. Farrell, we've actually encountered him before on Street Trash. He was a producer on that film too, as well as appearing as one of the victims in that film. Other producer, Mike Lee, is rather infamous in Britain for founding the company Vipco, who were in oodles of trouble due to releasing several of the video nasties that caused the panic in the first place, including the infamous Driller Killer. Lee was therefore ruthlessly pursued and prosecuted by the authorities during the saga, but was notably one of the few prosecuted distributors of a video nasty to have survived the fallout of the panic, continuing in business until the company crumbled in 2007. His titles from Vipco, in the early 2000s anyway, were notorious for being mostly low-quality VHS rips, despite saying digitally remastered on the cover, they were quite bare bones in terms of special features as well, and were paraded around for a very long time, but they're still ongoing after the unsold discs were acquired by Cornerstone Entertainment and repackaged under the new Beyond Terror label. On a related note to Driller Killer, the cinematographer of Abel Ferrara's film was Ken Kelsch, who also worked on the Twisted Souls cut as well. Despite suffering the loss of his son on the set, Kelsch continued to work in the industry and returned to Abel Ferrara on Bad Lieutenant, as well as Faulkner on Killer Dead. The special effects, as you can imagine, were done by so many people, so you'll have to bear with it a little. They include Jennifer Aspinall, who we've seen before on Street Trash, Arnold Gargiolo, who we've encountered on The Deadly Spawn, Gabriel Bartalos, who also portrayed one of the Mudmen, he worked on Fright Night Part 2, Brain Damage, Basket Case 2 and 3, most of the Leprechaun movies, Friday the 13th Part 6, From Beyond, Dolls, The Lamp, Gremlins 2, Darkman, and even The Giver. 
Vincent J. Gostini also helped. He went on to Toxic Avenger Part 3, Child's Play 3, Super Mario Brothers, The Movie, Thinner, Virus, Dogma, and Requiem for a Dream. Whilst Nick Santoramo was also involved, graduating onto Brain Damage, Basket Case 2, and Frankenhooker. Nancy Tong also devised some of the special effects, but she's since become a hairstylist on loads of films like The Cable Guy, Mr. Deeds, Pirates of the Caribbean, Series of Unfortunate Events, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Click, Don't Mess with the Zohan, uh, Grown Ups 2, Bad Neighbours 2, and most recently, Sully, Miracle on the Hudson. John Dodds from Deadly Spawn and Night Beast also helped out with some of the creature effects and creation, and the same goes for Ken Brillian, who has since gone on to things like Elves, The Lost World Jurassic Park, Face Off, and The X-Files movie. Again, there's more. Ken Walker also helped, and like Dodds, he was from The Deadly Spawn, and Al Magliocchetti, who did the visual special effects, went on to do loads of visual effects in films such as Brain Damage, Prom Night 3, Basket Case 2, Frankenhooker, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Basic Instinct, Robocop 3, Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday, Waterworld, X-Men, and most recently, Sharknado 5 Global Swarming. From the new Spookies footage, director, writer and editor Jeannie Joseph went on to do Mindbenders and Heatstroke. She'd also worked on James Glickenhouse's The Exterminator as well. Other writer, Anne Begund, her only other credit was as a producer on the 1994 film The Mask with Jim Carrey. Cinematographer Robert Chappelle also went on to the documentary The Thin Blue Line and Without Mercy whilst the new special effects guy, Larry Ravine, worked before and after almost exclusively on pornography, which probably accounts for some of the cheaper effects used outside of the Twisted Souls footage. The film was released on video in late 1986, bypassing the cinemas altogether, with only a small release the next year in the US, and a very limited run in Hong Kong. It wasn't successful at the box office at all, though, but it did become a success on home video in almost every territory, racking up millions. It skipped the nasty scare, being released so late, and ended up being released without cuts twice in the UK. Once in the late 80s by Palace Video, the ones responsible for releasing Evil Dead, and then in the early 2000s by Mike Lee of Vipco, where it made a killing. It's still available in the UK on those infamous Vipco DVDs, but a treat like this is just howling for a remastered release, possibly with a documentary about the troublesome production. I'd be really, really very interested in a release like that. So, anyone? Arrow? 88 Films? You know, it's just, just waiting there. So, that was Spookies, and the end of our show again. That's all, folks. We're done here. No more films now until next week. We're changing tactic again next week with another paradigm shift to a different genre altogether. Forget monsters, aliens, or demons. We're returning to the good old-fashioned slasher film next week, the one specifically themed around actors and the theatre. Obviously, we watch Colton films every day, and we take an interest in the filmmaking process, but some of our horrors use that particular world as a basis for the plot in their films, such as Revenge of the Bogeyman, set on a Hollywood film set, or Dario Argenta's Opera, set in an opera house. Next week, two such thematic films will be covered, with 1983's Curtains and 1987's Stage Fright. Until the theatrics of next week, though, take care and watch out for any deadly gill men or farting mud men. You've been warned. Ciao for now, everybody. Ta-ta and bye-bye.